Welcome to the Post-Christian Podcast, where we help you make disciples in our increasingly post-Christian world. My name is Eric Bryant. I'm one of the executive pastors at Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, along with the founder of Catalyzing Community. You can go to ericbryant.org to sign up for my email newsletter to receive free resources. On today's episode of the Post-Christian Podcast, I'm excited to have back a friend, Pastor Stephanie O'Brien. How are you doing, Steph? Hey, good to be with you. Well, I'm excited to talk with you here. It's the beginning of our season seven, and you had a book that came out since the last time we talked called yeah. Make a Move, and I want to talk all about that because in some ways you've been living this out. Yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe uh, talk about 2022, 2023. Uh, you're a church planner, Mill City Church in Minneapolis. Of course, Minneapolis was the focal point for a lot of really tough things that we went through as a nation in 2020. I just would love to hear some of the exciting uh, changes going on in your life and your church, because I think it will be an encouragement to others as it has been to me, just hearing the ways you've been navigating the ups and downs of ministry these last couple of years. Talk about what's happening at Mill City. Yeah, yeah, I would love to. I'm kind of a master of um, short story long, but this is definitely like long story short here. But, um, you know, we planted Mill City 15 years ago in 2008. Some people would have said like planting a church in 2008 with the recession and everything maybe wasn't an ideal time, but when God calls you, you do it. And that's kind of at the core of what Make a Move is about. It's like, you don't, we can make strategic plans and I'm not against those, but I don't know if anyone else has noticed, but you put those plans out too far and it's going to get disrupted. And if we didn't know that before 2020, we we probably do now. So I think uh, I wrote Make a Move because it was this idea of like, how do we do, I call it discernment through movement, like listening and responding to God step by step. Um, I'd love to have all the steps, but typically that's not how it works. And so I certainly didn't have all the steps when we planted the church and um, certainly didn't have all the steps when we uh, hit March of 2020, um, but had some frameworks of how to think about discernment and listening to God, even in the unexpected. And so the sub the subtitle is how to make decisions in a disorienting world, <laughs> you know, and how to, to discern in this disorienting world. And I thought before 2020 was already a pretty disorienting world, but here we are uh, knowing what, knowing the depths of some of those words, mm -hmm. like unprecedented and disorienting and pivot. And so uh, 2020 and 2022, uh, like th that COVID two years was, was wild for us. Our church met in a school. And so um, when the Minneapolis public schools said we're shut down, that meant the the church gatherings had to be shut down as well. But like we all talked about, like the church doesn't close just because we can't physically meet. And so we had a lot of, of experiments and how to continue to connect. And um, at some point along the way, well, yeah. And then, and then when uh, George Floyd was murdered about six miles from our church. So we're talking about like in the heart of our reality and we were grateful. Um, I mean, terrible situation, but very grateful. We had already been involved in racial justice and figuring out what it looks like to participate in that in our city. And so this was just another, um, I would say, very tragic chapter of that. And it was uh, one of those things that was heard around the world, but wasn't the first experience we had had in our part of the city. So, um, but, you know, before that, I remember telling people I live in Minnesota and they're like, where exactly is that? Or I'm in Minneapolis and they'd say Indianapolis. And now people do know where Minneapolis is. And I 
so wish we had a different reason that people knew where we were. But I, I am proud of how our city has tried to continue to respond to that and keep moving forward in the long road in the same direction of of civil rights and racial justice. And so all of a sudden our church was, you know, homeless and uh, continuing to find ways to meet. We were in a wedding venue for a while. And then we started noticing that it was growing. And the statistics that I was hearing was that people were just hoping people would come back. And we had people leave like everyone else. But all of a sudden, many people were coming back. And then who were all these new people? And somewhere in the midst of all that, um, trying to figure out how to become a more medium-sized church in the midst of COVID and how many people you don't want to have in a room and do want to have in a room. Um, we got a call from a church down the street from us who's in our our kind of network of churches that said, hey, COVID had the opposite effect on us. And we are hitting the end of a long season of decline that had started in the early 2000s. And COVID just took the wind out of the sails. Very long story short, they said, would you be open to discerning? There it is again. Mm-hmm. Listening to God together and saying what could happen with their future and if that has anything to do with ours. And um, after a lot of following those steps of experimenting and discerning corporately, not just individually, of course, our life decisions matter a ton, but they all come together in a community. And how does a group of people listen to God together? And um, after about nine months, we both churches discerned that the other church, Elam, uh, it was called, decided to close. They signed over all of their assets and liabilities. And most importantly, um, everyone in their community that wanted to become a member would immediately be a member of our church. And almost all of them decided to do that. And then they were voting to to close their church. And our our church plant that was now 14 years old was going to adopt an, a 135-year-old historic church and their historic building. And again, most importantly, their amazing people and figure out how to move forward together in the most unprecedented time since I've been alive in my 40 years. So it's been wild. <laughs> and I am absolutely living what I wrote in that book. Well, it it's beautiful too. I mean, getting to be on your campus. Yeah, you, you came to visit us recently. Oh, and even meeting, you know, some of your staff, meeting some of the folks that call that church home and have for a long time. Yeah. Talk about some of the ways you have been able to do this. I mean, other churches have tried church mergers, uh, takeovers, acquisitions, whatever you want to call it. You use the word adopt, and you actually had this church. uh, I mean, the church was closed and then started meeting with you, if I remember right, at the school. And then everybody came over as some remodeling was done. I think that process is really valuable. Share a little bit about kind of how you're linking to the past, but starting something new together. Yeah, I mean, I I do want to give credit to uh, the book Better Together that put out by the Leadership Network. Um, it's actually, I mean, I know that phrase "Better Together" is really used, but when you look it up, you'll see it's about church mergers and a lot of statistics in there. And to your point, like a lot of times it doesn't work, but the benefit we have now, you know, in 2024, is that we have some pretty good stats on why it does and doesn't. Doesn't mean it's a foolproof thing, but there are some good you know, guidelines to consider and just some good matches, just like any other two humans aren't a good match um, or whatever, like what's a good match for what needs to happen. And so we saw ourselves in the book and in some other stats that we looked at and we were in the category of most likely to succeed. And so 
I will say like that, that gave us some courage, but not enough courage. We needed more. So we needed the Holy Spirit to encourage us. And we needed to all recognize that we were stepping into something that is unknown. And that's just the reality of life is that we would love to have certainty, but that's a myth. And all we get to have is the, the assurance. I always say like, I think there's, maybe it seems just like a semantics, but I think assurance is different than, than certainty. And Jesus invites us to have that, you know, blessed assurance that we talk about in him and in who God is and that God doesn't change, but literally everything else does. And so how do we follow that God into these things? And so I think for, for us, you know, when, when that community was still, I mean, still 125 people or so, um, all different ages, but a good chunk of them over 75. And there was a really courageous decision. They were putting a lot of trust in myself and the other leaders of Mill City because they were saying, you know, our church is joining yours. And while we did receive, so one of the things was we did receive some of their leaders into our structure. So into our leadership team or our board and onto our staff. Um, but there was a clear, it was very clear that they were joining a team. They weren't leading the team anymore. And um, that was, that was a, the clarity was really important. Brene Brown always says clarity is kindness. It was in this scenario. And when people are like, is this a takeover? It's like, well, you approached us. So one of their leaders says it's a give over. <laughs> like it's a little different. I and then it. someone said, well, is it a merger? And I said, you know what? It's not, it's not a merger. Like if we were saying that phrase, that would be like a blend, but it's like a family. So that's why we ended up using the adoption language. When somebody's adopted into a family, that changes the family dynamic. Don't get me wrong, but they're joining that family system and they're going to impact that family system. But it's not the same as two family systems making a mashup that's going to be a, a different one. Um, and that's not always the case, but it was in our scenario. So we were trying to accurately describe what we were doing. Other times people are doing more of a merge. And so we just called it an adoption because the church is, you know, essentially the family of God, obviously, and has a lot of little extended families. And um, one of the things we realized right away was they had taken really, really good care of their building, which is a good thing because it's 55,000 square feet in the heart of the city. And the oldest part is from 1905. And the newest part is from 1988 when I was the ripe age of six years old. Right. So I think, uh, I mean, absolutely incredible. They took such good care of it. But one of the things they had let go for um, for reasons that make sense is the aesthetic stuff because it makes more sense to focus on the roof and the boiler and all those things. And also pretty hard to remodel while you're worshiping actively in a building every single week. And so we said, let's take this opportunity to freshen up. And really we were restoring things. We weren't, we didn't tear any walls down or anything. We we're just restoring the things that needed to be restored. And um, some of those things were very simple, but they made a big difference. And that meant that these folks were joining us in a school. And for some of those, you I mean, just imagine, depending on who's listening to this, it's easier for you than others, but you've worshiped in a church building that seems like a traditional church building your entire life. And then you're asked to go down the street to a public school where every once in a while you catch out of the corner of your eye a rodent. You know, that's not exactly what you're hoping for. And so I knew that if we were going to do this remodel, uh, we started in January of last year. So we're now just as we're talking now, we're on the exactly a year today, actually, we started. Wow. And I thought I cannot have these saints worshiping in this school for Easter. We've got to get them back in there and we want to be there too. So we worked really hard and got it restored and moved in. And um, one of the things that was really important to me the whole time was to tell them, we're not just adopting your building. That's actually, every, I mean, that's the thing everybody thinks about. And it really matters, obviously, and it's a huge responsibility. 
but the people is what's most important. And then also we're adopting your legacy. And you've been here for 135 years. Some courageous Swedish speakers decided to say we want to worship Jesus in our language and it's too hard to get our horses across the river in the snow. So we want to have a church here in Swedish. And that matters, you know. And so how do we display that story, celebrate that story, and say we're adopting that legacy? Just like if you adopted a child from another continent or country, you wouldn't want them to forget that they're from Ethiopia or that they're, you know, from El Salvador, like this matters. And so we want to say we're adopting that with them. And so we've set up a a history room that gives a timeline of the history of how the church started. And they hadn't displayed any of that stuff. And for those of you who think about church leadership, you can kind of see why, right? We're supposed to be new. We're thinking about the future. We're, we're, you know, trying to think about how we can be relevant and all that stuff. And I don't blame anybody. And maybe putting pictures of uh, Swedish people in black and white on the walls, you know, wasn't exactly going to help them in that way. But at the same time, I think that anybody can think about how their legacy can very much point towards their future. Mm -hmm. And so I love that idea that these immigrants were trying to figure out how to do that. And we're actually planting a Spanish speaking immigrant church. So like, I don't necessarily recommend adopting a 135-year-old Swedish immigrant church and planting a baby uh, Latino church at the same time. That was a little more than we bargained for. But how cool is that? And of course, at this point, people don't speak Swedish anymore. But that's still the legacy, right? And so um, it's been really neat to figure out how we say, like, where we've come from matters. But of course, like, in the kingdom of God, like, where we're going matters, too, ultimately the future kingdom is the is the goal. And so how do we join in what God's doing and build off of that and stand on the shoulders of the people that have come before us? I mean, when I grow up, I want to be like these older folks from Elam. I mean, I just think the way they've handled this and the way you've led through this is really remarkable. And that room is beautiful. I mean, it really kind of feels like a prayer room where you can... Yeah. And it had historically been a prayer room. So we were kind of saying like, here's the people... Like, come in here and pray as you look at, like, the answers to prayers on the wall. Yeah, that's right. And it inspires us to, like, and what impact will we make? I mean, one of the legacy moments for this church was starting what became Bethel Seminary. You know, both you and I have attended, you know, and taught. Um, I I, want to talk for a moment in the middle of all of that. I mean, just the transition has been remarkable. You've led so well. But in 2024, what are some other ways you're discerning while moving how the church could be more effective post-pandemic in this division that we're living in? Talk about a few other things you're implementing yeah. there in Mill City. Yeah, yeah. And I, I use that word experiment a lot. Um, you know, as a leader, there's a temptation to be like, we're launching a new thing that we're pretty sure is going to be successful. And I don't know, at this point, I'm not sure anything's going to be successful. So I all I know, this success has to be measured in different ways now. And I think the success is to be really listening and responding to what the spirit of Jesus is doing, which at, that's kind of my definition of discipleship, like listening and responding to the spirit of Jesus that he said he sent us when he physically left. And how do we join in that? Mm-hmm. So uh, a couple of things that we're really wondering about, you know, in our part of the city is very post-Christian is what I would call it. And, um, you know, we we would say now, I think, like statistically and sociologically, we're moving into a post-Christian time, meaning that, you know, the name of this podcast, right? That's what that means. And I'm sure you talk about that big picture. So what I mean when I use that term in, in our part of the city is we don't assume 
that the neighbors of our church have really heard about Jesus any more than people have heard about, you know, any other religious leader, <laughs> um, right. generally speaking. And if they have, that they have any understanding of what that means for them or why that matters um, or that they had any experience in a church. And then maybe we assume if they did, that that potentially was not positive for whatever reasons might not have anything to do with anyone else's fault. Maybe it was. And so when we talk about things like evangelism or sharing the name of Jesus with people um, in a way that they could choose to follow him, we're talking about experimenting because, you know, we've got a few other churches doing some great alpha courses, but it's not filling up pretty fast. So what is it? And I love alpha. I love that material. So how do we get what we talk about in alpha into other spaces? And so, for instance, one thing that we we did was start a church that's focused on the table. So it's a dinner church and, um, you know, sent out leaders and they function like a church that's connected to us. But they're sitting around tables with people and they're having folks make faith commitments, you know, that are, you know, they're not staring at the back of anyone's head. And that's, you know, wonderful. And we're we can't fit everybody who wants. There's plenty of people who want to come in and and listen to a sermon and sing beautiful songs to Jesus and go out and live missionally in their neighborhood. So we're going to keep doing that. We're already trying to f shove them all in because the church has just kept growing. But what does it look like to be the church together in other spaces too and equip people to do that as they're in their family units and um, connecting people regionally so that they see themselves on mission, not just coming from our church building, but from the spaces. We use the term everyday spaces. How is God moving in your everyday spaces where you live and work and learn and play? Like that's the number one space you're going to live this out. The, our church building is the second spot for some of you, if it even second or lower, you know, right. so that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I think one of the things, the, another, another example, um, just to give two different examples is one of the phrases that I have started to use a lot with people is we are we are in a time when it's becoming increasingly complex to be a Jesus follower mm. in our in our uh, mainstream culture in America. Yeah. And we could look at that a lot of different ways. And I look at it and say that is a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. And so what does it look like for us to accept the challenge that it is difficult to be a Jesus follower in in this time and it's getting increasingly complex to do that but complexity sometimes refines what we're trying to do and mm -hmm. so we talk about that a lot and the distinction of what it means to be a Jesus follower um and not necessarily any of the other titles that sometimes can just mean a group that you check on a box and you know and Christian meaning like little Christ people trying to be like Jesus what does that mean and how to be Jesus centered and I'm not saying that every church isn't doing that. I think that's what it is, but we're actually just naming that. Like, has anyone else noticed it's getting increasingly complex to do this? And then you bring that up on a stage and you hear, mm, yeah, you know, so how are we experimenting with that and giving people the tools and resources digitally in person, you know, feeling equipped. We just talk about equipping a lot that not just equipped to lead programs in our church, which we do need people to do, but equipped to be somebody who can genuinely follow Jesus in the disorienting world that we're in. And, you know, then that experimenting comes back in that I talk about in the book. Well, I'm very grateful for the ways you equip all of us. The book is Make a Move. I'll be sending a few copies to those who receive my email newsletter. You can sign up at ericbryant.org. You can also go to pastorsteph.com. Uh, Stephanie, you're doing a great podcast with Joe Saxton, the uh, lead stories. You guys do the Azer conference together. 
Um, just highly recommend Stephanie to you. Thank you for all you're doing, Stephanie. Keep up the great work. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for letting me tell the story. It's really awesome. Only, only God. It's pretty cool to be a part of it. Thanks for joining us on the Post-Christian Podcast. More resources available at ericbryant.org.